Chapter Forty Three of Peter Simple. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anthony Gerges. Peter Simple by Frederick Marriott. Chapter Forty Three. Description of the Coast of Martinique. Popped at for peeping. No heroism in making oneself a target. Board a miniature Noah's Ark under Yankee colors. Capture a French slaver. Parrot soup in lieu of mock turtle. We found orders at Barbados to cruise off Martinique to prevent supplies being furnished to the garrison of the island, and we proceeded there immediately. I do not know anything more picturesque than running down the east side of this beautiful island, the ridges of hills spreading down to the water's edge, covered with the freshest verdure, divided at the base by small bays with the beach of dazzling white sand, and where the little coasting vessels, employed to bring the sugar from the neighboring estates, were riding at an anchor. Each hill at its adjutment towards the sea was crowned with a fort of which waves the tricolor, certainly in appearance, one of the most warlike flags in the world. On the third morning we had rounded the diamond rock and were scuttling along the lee side of the island, just opening Fort Royal Bay, when, hauling rather too close round its eastern entrance formed by a promontory called Solomon's Point, which was covered with brushwood, we found ourselves nearer than agreeable to the newly constructed battery. A column of smoke was poured along the blue water, and it was followed by the whizzing of a shot, which passed through our boom mainsail, first cutting away the dog-vane which was close to our old Swinburne's head, as he was on the corrode conning the brig. I was at dinner in the cabin with O'Brien and the first lieutenant. "'Where the devil have they got the brig now?' said O'Brien, rising from his chair and going on deck. We both followed, but before we were on deck, three or four more shots passed between the mast. "'If you please, sir,' said the master's mate in charge of the deck, whose name was O'Farrell, "'the battery has opened upon us.' "'Thank you very much for your information, Mr. O'Farrell,' replied O'Brien, "'but the French have reported it before you. "'May I ask if you have any particular to fancy to be made a target of?' or if you think that his majesty's brig rattlesnake was sent here to be riddled for nothing at all starboard the helm quartermaster the helm was put up and the brig was soon run out of the fire not however until a few more shots were pitched close to us and one carried away the foretopmast backstay no mr o'farrell replied o'brien i only wish to point out to you that i trust neither i nor anyone on the ship cares a fig about the whizzing of a shot or two about our ears when there is anything to be gained for it either for ourselves or for our country but i do care a great deal about losing even the leg or the arm much more the life of any of the men when there is no occasion for it so in future recollect it's no disgrace to keep out of the way of a battery when all the advantage is on their side i've always observed that chance shots pick out the best men lower down the mainsail and send the sailmaker aft to repair it when brian returned to the cabin i remained on deck for it was my afternoon watch and although o'farrell had permission to look out for me i did not choose to go down again the bay of Fort Royal was now opened, and the view was extremely beautiful. Swinburne was still on the Courant, and as I knew he had been there before, 
I applied to him for information as to the locale. He told me the names of the batteries above the town, pointed out Fort Edward and Negro Point, and particularly Pigeon Island, the battery at the top of which wore the appearance of a mural crown. It's well I remember that place, Mr. Simple, said he. It was ninety-four when I was last there. The soldiers had sieged it for a whole month, and we were about to give it up, because they couldn't get a gun up at that pointier hill you see over there. So poor Captain Faulkner says, there's many a clear head under a tarpaulin hat, and I'll give any chap five doubloons that will hitch up a twenty-four pounder to the top of the hill. Not quite so easy as a matter as you may perceive from here, Mr. Simple. It certainly appears to me to have been almost impossible, Swinburne, replied I. And so did it to most of us, Mr. Simple. But there was one Dick Smith, made of a transport, who had come on shore, and he steps out saying, I've been looking at your men handling that gun, and my opinion is that if you gets a butt, crams in a currant, well rolled it up, and fill it with old junk and Europe yarns, you may parbuckle it up to the very top. So Captain Faulkner pulls out five doubloons and gives them to him, saying, You deserve the money for the hint, even if it don't succeed. But it did succeed, Mr. Simple, and the next day, to their surprise, we opened fire on the French beggars, and soon brought their boasting down. One of the French officers, after he was taken prisoner, asked me how we had managed to get the gun up there, but I wasn't going to blow the gaff. So I told him a great secret that we got it up with a kite, upon which we opened all his eyes, and crying, Sacre bleu, walked away, believing all that I said was true. But ain't that a sail we have opened with the point, Mr. Simple? It was so, and I reported it to O'Brien, who came up and gave chase. In half an hour we were alongside of her when she hoisted American colors and proved to be brigantine laden up to her gunwale, which had not a foot above the water. Her cargo consisted of what the American called notions, that is, in English, an assorted cargo. Halfway up her masts, down to the deck, were hung up baskets containing apples, potatoes, onions, and nuts of various kinds. Her deck was crowded with cattle, sheep, pigs, and donkeys. Below was full of shingle lumber, and a variety of different articles too numerous to mention. I boarded her and asked the master whither he was bound. Why, replied he, I'm bound for the market. No eyes particular, and I guess you won't stop me. Not if it's all right, replied I, but I must look at your log. Well, I've a notion there's no great objection to that, replied he, and he brought it up on deck. I had no great time to examine it, but I could not help being amused that the little I did read, such as horse latitudes, water very short, killed white-faced bullock, caught in a dolphin, and ate him for dinner, broached molasses cask, number one, letter A, fine night, saw little round things floating on the water, took up a bucketful, guessed they were pearls, judge, I guess wrong, only little Portuguese men of war, threw them overboard again, heard a little scream, guessed it was a mermaid, looked out, saw nothing, witnessed a very strange rippling ahead, calculated it must be the sea serpent, stood on to see him plain, and nearly ran on Barbuda, hauled off again, met a Britchner, treated politely. Having overhauled his log, I then begged to overhaul his men, to ascertain if there were any Englishmen among his crew. This was not pleasing, and he grumbled very much, but they were ordered aft. One man I was satisfied was an Englishman, and told him so, but the man, as well as his master, persisted to the contrary. Nevertheless, I resolved to take him on board for O'Brien to decide, and ordered him on to the boat. 
Well, if you will use force, I can't help it. My decks ain't clear, as you see, or else. I tell you what, Mr. Lieutenant, your vessel there will be another Hermione. I've a notion if you press as true bloody Yankees, and what's more, the States will take it up as sure as the snakes in Virginia. Notwithstanding this remonstrance, I took them on board to O'Brien, and had a long conversation with the American in the cabin. When they returned on deck, he was allowed to depart with his man, and we again made sail. I had the first watch that night, and we ran along the coast. I perceived a vessel under the high land in what the sailors called the doldrums, and this is, most becalmed, or her sailors, flapping in every direction with the eddying winds. We steered for her, and were very soon in the same situation, not more than a quarter of a mile from her. The quarter boat was lowered down, and I proceeded to board her, but as she was large and rakish, O'Brien desired me to be careful, if there were the least show of resistance to return. As I pulled up her bows, they hailed me in French, and desired me to keep off, or they would fire. This was quite sufficient, and in obedience to my orders, I returned to the brig and reported to O'Brien. We lowered down all the quarter-boats, and towed round the brig's broadside to her, and gave her half a dozen carronades of round and grape. Here, in great noise and confusion on board after we had ceased firing, O'Brien again sent me to know if they had surrendered. They replied in the affirmative, and I boarded her. She proved to be the Commence de Bordeaux, with three hundred and thirty slaves on board, out of five hundred embarked from the coast bound to Martinique. The crew were very sickly, and were most of them in their hammocks. Laterally, they had been killing parrots to make soup for them. A few that were left of the gray species smoked remarkably well when they left the coast. They had nearly one thousand parrots on board. O'Brien, perceiving that I had taken possession, sent another boat to know what the vessel was. I desired the surgeon to be sent on board, as some of the men and many of the poor slaves were wounded by our shot. Of all the miserable objects, I know of none to be compared to the poor devils of slaves on board of a slave vessel. The state of suffocation between decks, the dreadful stench arising from their filth, which is hardly ever cleared away, the sick lying without help, and looked upon by those who are stronger with the utmost indifference. Men, women, and children, all huddled and crowded together in a state of nudity worn to skin and bone from stench, starvation, and living in an atmosphere that none but a negro could exist in. If all that occurs on a slave ship were really known, I think it would be acknowledged that to make the slave trade piracy would be nothing more than a just retribution, and this is certain, that unless it be made piracy, it will never be discontinued. By daylight the vessel was ready, and O'Brien determined to take her to Dominica, so that the poor devils might be immediately set on shore. We anchored with her in a few days in Prince Rupert's Bay, where we had only twenty-four hours to obtain some refreshments and arrange about our prize, which I hardly need say was of some value. During the short time that I was on shore, purchasing some fowls and vegetables for O'Brien and our own mess, I was amused at witnessing a black sergeant drilling some of his regiment of free negroes and mulattoes. He appeared resolved to make the best appearance that he could, for he began by saying, You have sure and talking, stand in front. You have sure no talking, stand in center. You have sure no talking, stand in rear. Face to mountain, back to sea bench. Why do you tap out, sir? You hangman. I was curious to count the numbers qualified for the front rank. There were only two mulattoes. In the second rank, there were also only two. No shoe and no talking appeared to be the fashion. 
as usual we were surrounded by the negroes and although we had been but a few hours they were song compared to us for they constantly repeated don't you see the rattlesnake coming under sail don't you see the rattlesnake with prizes at a tail rattlesnake have all the money ding ding she have all that's funny ding ding end of chapter forty three